You're tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The water contamination from the fuel at Red Hill has been in the headlines for more than a year and a half now. This week, the military announced it expects to begin draining the fuel in October amidst calls to accelerate the timeline. Many stories have been in the news about the military families who've been affected by the fuel in their drinking water. Today, we hear more from civilians who were also affected. HPR reporter Sabrina Bowden joins us today. Good morning. Hey, Catherine. So yesterday there was a press conference with the Sierra Club and Community X, which is a uh, L.A.-based group, and they travel around the country and they try to drum up support for people who are undergoing, you know, different types of crises. And, you know, one of the things that they've been looking at is different water crises. So they came out here uh, yesterday and they were talking with civilian families and they hosted this press conference. And there was Noreen Tuck, who is a special education teacher who lives in Eva. And she and her family originally moved to Oahu in July 2021 for a new start. And they were living in Kapolina when the Red Hill water crisis began. And as a civilian family, she alleges she was never told she was on Navy water lines. Uh, she says her landlord to- told her to use bottled water as in abundance of caution. But, you know, there were medical complications that she was dealing with. And she describes when she realized that the adverse medical complications may have been linked to the jet fuel exposure. It was more like a a light went on sort of moment because we weren't informed right away. So I heard of the leak. I have a cousin who is in the military and on those same lines. And she spoke about it and you know, about what was going on. And I didn't think anything of it until my kids and myself started getting sick. So the headaches, vomiting, stomach issues, and I had gotten a diagnosis, which I now know is related to the water. I just thought that was part of it, which it kind of was. But I went to the community website and realized that other people were experiencing the same things. I had gotten skin issues and eye infections and and whatnot. And eventually Tuck and her family were able to move off Navy water lines in Eva in January 2022. But she says a lot of the damage was already done. So for herself, she's been experiencing severe migraines, balance issues, and some memory loss. And one of her daughters has also been diagnosed with mood disorders and is hypersensitive to the island's water. So we stayed in Eva, but we continue to have problems because of my daughter's initial exposure, drinking jet fuel, and now we know PFAS and all those toxins, she is now hypersensitive. And so she cannot come in contact with any water on the island without having very, very severe reactions. And she missed so much school because of it. So anytime she would have a reaction, she'd be out of school for seven, eight, nine days. And earlier this year, the military opened up the Red Hill Clinic to help those with long-term health issues that may be linked to the initial jet fuel exposures in 2021. And it first opened for military families affected. And in the last few months, they have opened it up to civilian families as well. Tuck, as well as other families, don't want to put their trust, their trust or their health back in the hands of the military. I wouldn't dare go there. And I don't know any civilians who have or would go there because it took so long for even civilians to be believed that we were affected um, by, you know, area hospitals because this medical advisory went out. 
So it took a while for us to get the care and testing that we needed. And the military has made so many promises and has not really, really followed through on those promises. So it's not a place that I would feel comfortable getting my care from. And Tuck spoke at this press conference, again, the Sierra Club and Community X. And the two groups are currently working on two calls for action. One is signing a petition demanding justice from the military and more accountability be taken for the crisis. And the other is raising money to help affected families in medical debt. Yeah, so these families then aren't taking advantage of the clinic and so mm-hmm. are just then what going to their private doctors and I guess picking up the cost, the tabs for that. Yeah, and one of the very interesting things that uh, Tuck had said is, you know, I don't want to go back to the military and hear them say that I, I'm not experiencing anything. And that's also what another family who was at the press conference said. You know, they have are going into debt. They're racking up credit card bills. It, it costs a lot of money to go to the doctor, number one, but also to be able to move off of these Navy water lines. So they're just experiencing a lot of debt at this point. Okay, and so they just are, yeah. They don't, I guess they don't trust the military. They don't want to go mm-hmm. to the clinics. Uh, and so they're footing the bill themselves. And, and we'll see where the lawsuits go. Yeah, and at the end of the press conference, I overheard Community X delivering some money to one of the affected families to help them cut down on the costs so far. So, you know, this is kind of what we're hearing about these long-term issues. It's been over 18 months at this point, and families are still experiencing severe migraines, mourning the loss of their pets and everything. And um, as far as these families, so they have joined the lawsuit or... I don't, not Noreen, I don't believe so. Um, But, you know, she's still speaking out and, you know, trying to get mainland support, which is what Community X is trying to do at this point. Okay. All right. So uh, I guess, yeah, just we'll see where this saga goes. Mm -hmm. Is it, you know, uh, develops. Um, But yeah, many families have been dealing with this for such a long time. Mm-hmm. But thank you so much, Sabrina. Thank you, Catherine. We've been talking with HPR's Sabrina Bowden. You can look for her stories at hawaiipublicradio.org. I can lose myself. You are kids. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Summertime is coming, and a lot of people are spending time in the water cooling off. Put on your snorkel gear and join us as we swim with the Hawaiian Sergeant Major, one of the most common uh, damselfish species in Hawaii. These reef fish truly live up to their English name. Starting as juveniles, they dominate other fish in their respective tide pool. Uh, Their primary diet consists of algae, plankton, and small organisms found on the surface. As they grow and mature, they migrate into deeper water, about 15 to 30 feet down along vertical reef faces. This is where the Sergeant Major thrives, growing up to 10 inches 
inches as an adult with a yellowish-green body with a light belly and five dark vertical bands on either side. When courting females or guarding their nests, these fish will frantically swim in circles, but the more interesting spectacle is the male's ability to change the color of his stripes from black to yellow. For today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us the Hawaiian name of the Sergeant Major Damselfish? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first person to uh, call us with the right answer takes home an HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii and its Community Giving Initiative. Learn more about how this program is supporting nonprofits focusing on affordable housing projects at nairithawaii.com. Tourism Authority was shaken to its core this session as it narrowly avoided a shutdown and being replaced by an office under a State Department. Uh, former State Representative Jimmy Tokioka took over at the Department of Business and Economic Development and Tourism. He has a background in hospitality and hopes he can help navigate through these rough waters. What are you thinking is the best way to be smart about tourism? I agree with what HTA was moving towards, which was more towards destination management and making the facilities or trying to work with the city and the county and the state on facilities, whether it's Wainapanapa or El Nido, where they can generate money and put money back into the facilities like comfort stations and parking and all of that. So I agree with that shift. I agree with part of the Malama the Aina campaign that HD was sending out there. But, you know, when we talk about different markets, I don't believe that is a good message for the Japanese market because Japanese tourists, when they come to Hawaii, we shouldn't be telling them take care of the Aina because they do. I, I believe Japanese tourists are the most respectful market segments that we have when it comes to respect the culture and the Aina. But for, you know, the U.S. mainland, I mean, we all see it. Tourists come here and some of them, they try to get up close and personal with the monk seals and they don't heed the warnings on dangerous trails. And then, then we put our lifeguards and we put, you know, our fire and rescue teams in harm's way because some tourists didn't want to follow the instructions and thought that, you know, the ocean is like a lake or a swimming pool and it's not. Well, HTA is about to you know, announce the uh, the RFP awards um, next week. Mm-hmm. You know, they still have to work out the funding. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. it's expected the administration, the governor, will come through with that money. But any other thoughts on where you see tourism at? I mean, you know, we're at a crossroads here. What would you like to see going forward? I feel I'm in a unique position because I came from the industry. I spent, you know, my first half of my adult life in the visitor industry and the restaurant industry. And then I moved to government on the county council. So 
A lot of the people in the industry I've known for many, many, many years and worked with for many, many years. And, you know, John DeFries is one of them. I've known John for 20 or 25 or 30 years now. You know, people like Jerry Gibson, a lot of the people in the industry have spent time on Kauai as they've moved their way up the food chain in the industry. And Jerry Gibson is one of them. So I have the ability to sit down in a room with many, many of them and have the trust and respect about sharing their concerns with HTA or the state on, you know, what some of the best paths forward will be for the communities and for the industry. And I think when I first started a while ago in the industry, a lot of the push was just to get heads in bed. And so now many of the hotel chains are looking at, of course, getting heads in the bed, but getting responsible tourism into the state. And that's another marketing message that HTA has been trying to deliver over the past couple of years, a few years now. And, and I totally support that. You know, we need to get responsible visitors. And that might be, you know, visitors in the middle market or the higher end market that are going to be responsible when they come to the state. And I think, you know, a lot of the local people see it at the parks and in the communities. And when you have the traveler that's not responsible and they don't take care of our resources and they're not respectful in the communities, that's when local people really get frustrated. And I know that many of the industry leaders feel the same way that, you know, they want to make sure they send that message out to visitors traveling into their hotels whether it's messaging on the television in the room, you see it in some of the hotels here now, whether it's at the concierge desk explaining to people, you know, not to go to these areas that are dangerous and don't go to the edge of the rock to see the blowholes spouting out and sometimes waves coming in and taking people out to the ocean. And then that puts our lifeguards at risk. So those are the kinds of things I know that the local people get very, very frustrated about. Well, this notion of a new governance model, I think, mm -hmm. is proposing that we, you know, look outside, look globally and see how other destinations are managing it. Uh, one example they gave was in Switzerland, you know. But the other aspect is getting someone with authority to get DLNR, to get, you know, these other departments doing a better job of managing, you know, whether it's the parks, you know, or places like Haena, you know, and, or, or, or Hanama Bay, you know, whatever the case may be, um, mm -hmm. that you need somebody with some kind of authority, you know, whether it's a tourism czar or somehow the authority is given to HTA that you've got to bring these parties to the table so that we can work together in a smarter way. Agree, agree. And, you know, that person would be the governor, but then through the governor, he has spoken to me specifically about that. And then when you think about the different departments that would be involved in that, which would be the LNR, I mean, I've known Kurt and Alan for the last 20 years. And, you know, Don is new, but I do have that relationship, been able to communicate with those divisions over those years. And so I think I have a unique position with them as well that I can call them up and ask them about, you know, how we can work better on these things. And then the minister will respect to, to get things done. And I'll give you a perfect example. The Senate president is really pushing for you know, the Made in Hawaii program to be expanded. And one of our biggest outlets for interaction via a website is the DLNR website because the reservations for these parks go through that site. And the reservation system for DLNR is the most widely hit site in the state of Hawaii Link. So, you know, we worked to move that Made in Hawaii logo to where the reservation that people click on is clearly visible there to help our local vendors. Because, you know, our local vendors, you know, people that 
are participating in the Hawaii program, you know, they want cross-advertising as well. And so when we can link that with whether it's the DOT website, the DLNR website, or the DBED website, and all of these different things can help local people, you know, sell their products. That's what our job is, is to make sure that we help our local people sell their products. And whether it's at that website or the government websites or Hawaii on the Hill, which I will be attending next month, you know, that's what the people who participate with the government love to see the assistance with programs like that. You know, there was the model before when tourism was under DBED. Yes. And then, you know, then HTA got created. Do you believe HTA has a place? Yes, I do. And, you know, it's, it's my responsibility to help communicate the message of HTA to the legislature. And it's my responsibility to, how do I want to say, earn the trust at the legislature. And that comes from communicating. And that comes from listening to committee hearings and committee chairs and members of, you know, what the concerns are. Because the legislature, all of the members at the legislature, they're driven by their constituents. And those constituents are our constituents at DBED. And each, you know, I'll use the state house situation. Each district is a different microcosm of the entire state. So how representation happens in Puna or Polehale on Kauai is, is different. It's different all over the state. So, you know, we need to hear from the, the different members at the legislature on what's important and then devise a plan to fit all of the concerns that people have in their community on managing tourism. You know, we also have the, the hotel in- industry that is a very, very big part of that. And, and, you know, working all of those different concerns, needs, and sectors into a plan to help how we manage tourism. So you believe that that is uh, your greatest strength, is being able to, to listen and bring that trust that you've built up um, over the years as a lawmaker to the table? I believe that's a skill set that I have, yes. And, you know, the proof is in the pudding. I've done it at different levels in my career. But now this is uh, a big challenge because there certainly is a big concern. The legislature would have, if there was that trust with the communication, the HTA would have never gone down to the 13th hour. And the bill that was going to fund HTA died. And then we had to find a different pocket to pay the bills at HTA. And that's exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. And so... Even before I started at DBED, I sat down with them and I said, we got to look in the mirror and we got to ask ourselves, why did this happen? And it came down to trust and communication. And every single executive at HCA agreed with me. And so I said, then we have to develop a plan to reestablish trust and communication at the legislature. That was a conversation we had with Kauai's Jimmy Tokioka, former state representative, who's been asked to step in to serve as director of the Department of Business, Economic Development, and Tourism. He was sharing his thoughts about how to be smarter about tourism in Hawaii and says he's open to talks about a new governance model for our number one economic driver. Civil Beat has a story about pollution in Kailua Bay. It's been a situation developing over the past month with problems at the city's wastewater plant. Reporter Marcel Henri joins us today. Good morning, Marcel. 
morning, Catherine. Happy Aloha Friday. Yes, I'm happy it's Friday. But, you know, I'm sure you, you were getting those news releases like we were about, you know, the levels being, the bacteria levels being higher than normal in Kailua. That's right. So today's story basically deals with the 13 different days between April 8th and May 4th in which elevated levels of a bacteria that's called Enterococcus were found in the sewage at the Kailua, the city's uh, Kailua wastewater treatment plant. Uh, and that sewage, you know, this is found at the plant before it's actually released out at sea. And on a couple of those 13 different days, the, the levels reached more than six times what is considered acceptable based on EPA standards. Now, so the city was releasing a steady stream of press releases during this period, but they were pretty basic. They didn't mention, you know, that severity. um, And they basically mentioned that signs were posted to stay away or stay out of the waters from what's called the outfall, which is the, the area a mile or so offshore where it's released. So then the state then posts its own press release on, I believe it was May 5th, that's informing the public about how severe these uh, elevated levels actually are. And it went further to advise people to stay basically out of the entire Kailua Bay area. And then earlier this week, there was a media briefing with uh, some officials from the state Department of Health Clean Water branch in which they mentioned that they felt that the city had uh, downplayed what that was their words, downplayed the situation um, in its messaging and uh, to the public and that they felt compelled to, to take this unusual step and put out their own press release. So <laughs> if you're following all of that, that basically prompted what occurred yesterday, which is a press conference uh, at the mayor's office uh, with Mayor Rick Blangiardi, who pushed back very strongly against any notion that the city had downplayed this. He also brought along uh, the the state health director, uh, these clean water branch officials' bosses, uh, who agreed with the mayor uh, that the city did not downplay the situation, uh, but the mayor did acknowledge that maybe they could work on their messaging protocols going forward should these spikes happen again. So it was just just a very unusual situation at the mayor's office yesterday. Yeah, well, I know when we were calling on it, you know, they the city, you know, couldn't really tell us what was going on. Uh, you know, they said it was a multiple multiple factors at play, uh, and they were still trying to get to the bottom of it. But, uh, you know, they did say, oh, well, you know, the, we did get some positive uh, results, you know, back to normal, below levels, and the signs were taken down. Yeah, to be clear, as far as with the, the sewage treatment plant, Everything appears to be all clear that the levels are back down to normal. The city is saying they're still investigating. Basically, everybody's investigating right now. Uh, you've got the EPA looking into it. You've got the state health officials uh, also looking into it. And the city, is all, they're all investigating, well, what caused this consistent spate of, um, of elevated levels, very high elevated levels of, um, of enterococci? And uh, yet at the same time, the city is already saying they're very confident that they've got it under control. Um, it's kind of a strange situation where they're saying we haven't concluded our investigation, but we can state confidently that we don't think it's going to happen again, that we've we've got it under control. Yeah, well, let's hope so. And I know it's been, there's been lots of talk about, you know, what's in our water. I think I've seen stories about the Kaneohe uh, marine base treatment plant over there and the upgrades that need to happen and 
And, you know, there are also the cesspool issues over in um, uh, Kahalu. So lots of uh, factors out there. Uh, but, yeah, uh, just got to be careful what's in the water, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a multi-pronged thing. And there was there were heavy rains at the same time as uh, this, uh, this situation with the treatment plant. So there was a lot of, you know, uh, I, I don't know if confusion is the right word, but basically there's a lot of speculation as to, you know, the various different causes at this time of, of for what you're also finding bacteria on the shoreline. Uh, so, yeah, and it just all goes to show that it's a multi-pronged situation, for the, you know, unfortunately for Kailua Bay and the pollution that goes in there. Well, uh, I know uh, people who stayed away from Kailua when, when those warnings uh, came out, and, and hopefully they're right. It won't happen again, uh, and that water stays clear. But thanks so much, Marcel. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Marcel Henri with today's Reality Check. You can read the story at civilbeat.org. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School. Help shape the future of Hawaii Public Radio. Nominate yourself for our Community Advisory Board. As a volunteer, you'll represent your neighborhood and advise HPR on programming, events, and outreach. If you live on Lanai, Moluka'i, Maui, Kauai, or the Big Island, we especially want you to apply. Apply by May 31st at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with art and artist-inspired talks, discussions, and programming for the community. Details of upcoming events at the What's On page at honolulumuseum.org. competition series RuPaul's Drag Race had its first Native Hawaiian competitor and winner on its most recent season, Sasha Kehaoha, better known to many by her stage name, Sasha Kobe, was born in Waimanalo. She had a successful career in drag queen pageants before appearing on the MTV show. HPR's Zoe Dim talked to Kobe about her experience on the show as a Native Hawaiian mahu. It was a lot of pressure on myself to be what they are saying I am. But it always had to go back to everything that makes you successful is things you've already known. Like it's whatever you're kind of innately drawn to or or innately good at doing. And really all those things that you enjoy when you were a kid before you had to like act like a grown up. uh, That's the thing that was always the magic part of you is finding that little kid and making that little kid have fun. Your legal last name is Kikau Oha, but you're more commonly known under your stage name, Sasha Colby, from the House of Colby. Can you tell me the history of this drag house and also how did you join? I am actually one of the founding members. (laughs) Um, The house is formed by my drag mother, Cassandra Colby. She is a trans woman. Uh, She's one universal show queen that is in Hawaii. 
she uh, is the the matriarch of the family, and she actually adopted her first batch of kids was myself. I was her first child. And then my brother Preston and Gil, they both work in Janet Jackson's team. And my mother's also on that team. That's like the main core, like the base kids was like a few of us dancers and a couple of, you know, kids in the scene that started out the house, I would say in around 2004, five, uh, it was when we all kind of started meeting it's actually a Hawaii house, like the other legendary houses, like the Jacobs or the Armanis. All the drag queens, all the trans sisters were all basically aunties, you know, niece, sister. So we're all family, but we all have like little sex in our big trans drag community. I thought your entrance look in the show was a very obvious nod to not only your Hawaiian heritage, but also to the house of Colby with the nude bodysuit with prints that look like Polynesian tattoos. What was your inspiration for that look and why was it important to have that be the viewer's first impression of you? The description of your workroom entrance is, what is you? Who are you? And I really thought about that. I'm like, well, what do I want them to know of me with what they already know? They already know I'm a pageant girl, but I wanted to be a strong warrior. This mixture of Kane and Wahine, just with this like unabashed strength that I always admire in Hawaiians. And the the idea of like this naked illusion was definitely, you know, playing on my trans body. And then the tattoos were intentional because I wanted it to be, in my head, strong and warrior-like. But after doing some research with a good friend of mine, Mehana, she actually told me what tattoos are used for in Hawaiian culture and that they're always marking, especially like tribal tattoos, they are marking different transitions of your life. It's like you're like a scrapbook of yourself, for lack of better words. But she was actually saying, you know, a lot of the times that you would do it as a native Hawaiian, as a Kanaka, you would do these tattoos. It was very ritualistic and it meant something. And the thing that stuck out to me is like this idea of transitioning. She said it, it always marks different transitions in your life. And it was like, wow, this is like me being trans and always in transition and kind of having these tattoos on me to uh, mark all the transitions and the milestones that I've had. I had the Hawaiian Islands on my right leg. And then I just put a little rhinestone where Waimanalo is just for me to remember where I came from. You mentioned you want the Kane and Wahine warrior to show through your first look. And Mahu has long been part of Polynesian cultures, especially here in Hawaii. Uh, we have a long history of drag culture on the islands, most notably the Glade Show Lounge in the 1970s. And today we still have a very present drag scene. So why do you think it took 15 seasons for a native Hawaiian to compete in RuPaul's Drag Race? Hmm. I'm not sure why it took 15 seasons. I genuinely don't know because I just am enamored with the queens from Hawaii, with the performers from Hawaii. I mean, that is my blueprint of who I am and and all the things that I like admired about watching the shows when I would go to Venus, like oh, it used to be called Venus. I think it was called Bar 7 for a while, but it was like an Ala Moana um, right around there. And it was like 18 and over club and I, I watched the best drag in my life. And I'm still chasing that dream show that I watched when I was like 18. And I try to now make that dream show every time I 
I'm performing. It was like, oh, what was that? You know, like, I'm just trying to relive what I always loved growing up and watching drag. I think that's where I am in my life. Like, <laughs> I'm just like loving, remembering all the nostalgia of what made me so happy when I first discovered drag. It's like that first love, that first kiss. There's been stories in the national headlines about a youth drag show getting canceled in California, Indiana, and lawmakers in Florida, Arizona, and Texas have proposed laws to ban minors from going to drag shows. Recently, I went to a drag queen story time with local queens Candy Shell and Tara Way, and there was a lot of protesters there. What would you say to someone who is concerned about drag culture being a negative influence to children? Oh, my goodness. I think there's just so much more in the world to be worried about than this art form that is nothing. It Honestly, drag was an art form that was made based on the fact that queer people and drag queens could not be themselves in normal society. So we made this place to play dress up and have safe space to be like, if you allowed me, I could be successful, a successful showgirl. I could be a beautiful Polynesian dancer. I could, you know, uh, be a, a an amazing comedian. And then it's now so popular due to drag race and a lot of mainstream popularity of drag that the general public, children who watch it on a television show that, first of all, how do you ban then start banning television and what drag is shown on television? Like, when does it stop with all this legislations? But you do all these things and then people want to come and see you, but it wasn't, it definitely wasn't made for children. And that's not something that I'm like, I'm going to make this number to woo kids to come and watch my show. Technically my numbers are PG 13 are for, for adults. You know, I do like burlesque numbers. I wouldn't expect to have children, but you shouldn't tell parents how to parent and what they should not do with their children. That's the thing. This is, it's not even about drag. It's not about those things. It's about them having control over people and taking control out of a parent's hand and ability to parent is crazy and to put it with this fear mongering of oh it's to protect the kids from these predators that's just ludicrous i mean there's no evidence of drag queens ever having anything to do harmful to children and that's that's all just noise that they're trying to kind of shout out there and on the show i thought you were very educational you talk about mahu and give a nod to the glade show lounge did you go into the show wanting to educate the viewers on Hawaiian gender history? And how did it feel in the moment? Uh, we definitely go through a lot of pre-interviews. And so they, they, under, they know where we are in our story. So I think they also knew what episode would have like uh, an effect or an impact. And so it, was, it just kind of coincided where some of my knowledge just worked well with what the challenges were at hand. And tell me what's next for you. Oh my goodness. I mean, sky's the limit be able to uh, do my own one-woman show and travel the world, to act, to make music, pretty much to tell stories. And that's always my go-to when I think of anything I do. My intention is to tell a story, to tell a story of someone or a story of a feeling. And I think that comes from my innate uh, kanaka-ness. Uh, we, as a human, didn't have paper or something to write with. So we pass our knowledge and all of our stories, you know, through through language 
through then then became melee and then became hula also we could remember these stories and pass them along and i think that's just innately what i like to do is i like to pass these stories along using my body using my performance ability and i think that's just in my way being very in tune with my kanaka-ness and do you have any plans to show your kanaka-ness in hawaii oh yes i'm actually my first trip back home will be in october i will be at Honolulu Pride, it really means a lot. And I get to see a lot of my, my chosen family and my trans brothers and sisters. So it's going to be an exciting, beautiful homecoming in October. I guess as a last note, it was so good to see Hawaii-born charisma, uniqueness, nerve, and talent on RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's so lovely to see Hawaii being so proud of, you know, a queer person representing them. It uh, warms my heart. That was Sasha Colby, a transgender drag queen and winner of RuPaul's Drag Race Season 15. She, uh, he, she was talking with HPR's Zoe Dim. Colby will be the Grand Marshal of the Honolulu Pride Parade and Festival in October. G-O-D-D-E-S-S Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz answer. Earlier in the show, we asked you to give us the Hawaiian name of the Sergeant Major Damselfish, commonly found in and around reefs throughout Hawaii. These damselfish are one of the most common reef fish in the state. Like their English name, they are dominant fish. It's easy to imagine them barking orders at other fish on the reef. One of the most well-known attributes is the ability to steal bait from fish hooks without getting caught. Reaching up to 10 inches in length as adults, they have a yellow-greenish body with a light belly and five dark vertical bars on each side. Males of the species have the ability to change the color of the bars to yellow. And in rare cases of extreme aggression, have been known to change their entire color scheme to dark blue. They are endemic to our islands and can only be found in waters off Hawaii. In Hawaiian, they are known as Mao Mao or Mamo for short, which is the answer to today's backyard quiz. And congrats to Mike from Kaimuki. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Amster. And I'm Jake Eagle. We're co-authors of The Power of Awe. Next time on New Dimensions, we'll be talking about the benefits of awe in less than one minute per day. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative.
A sunset ceremony took place this past weekend at the Hawaii Law Enforcement Memorial for those officers killed in the line of duty. Seven names were added, which included police and sheriffs whose stories date back to the late 1800s and early 1900s. One name that dates back to the 1800s was Koi Deputy Sheriff Louis Stoltz. He died following orders to forcibly evict a native Hawaiian named Ko'olau who fled to Kalalau Valley to avoid being exiled to Molokai because he had leprosy. There are many stories written about Ko'olau the outlaw. And there are always two sides to the story. And this was a twisted and tragic tale. Stoltz's family says before his death, he wrote to Honolulu officials warning the plan would not end well and suggested a peaceful solution to the conflict in the remote valley. Retired Honolulu Police Major Kirk Kendro is now with the Hawaii Law Enforcement Memorial Foundation. He sets up the story. If you know Kalanau Valley, it's a very difficult place to get to. You either have to come in by sea or you have to hike in a long, arduous hike along the coast or through the steep valleys of Kalanau. Deputy Sheriff Stoltz was the sheriff for the Waimea District and he was charged with apprehending uh, Ko'olau and taking him to to the island of Molokai. On hand for the Sunday ceremony was a great-great-granddaughter of Stoltz who traveled from California to read his name, Deputy Sheriff uh, Louis Stoltz, end of shift, 1893. Dr. Catherine Owen says that her great-grandmother, Mary Adelaide Stoltz, was a missionary descendant, daughter of Kauai Reverend George Berkeley Roll. She picks up the story about Deputy Sheriff Louis Stoltz. The Hawaiians called him Louis, Louis. Herbert Stoltz was a deputy sheriff on the island of Kauai who was killed by the Hawaiian Ko'olau, who had leprosy in the uh, Kalalau Valley in 1893. And uh, Louis Stoltz, we call him Louis. We've always called him Louis. I never heard him called Louis before, but that's how the Hawaiians supposedly knew him. And he was, I think he was a rancher or something and, and uh, married my great-grandmother, the daughter of missionaries. And uh, they had a family and there out of five children, two survived. At the time of his death, Louis Stoltz's death, my grandfather was five years old and his older sister I think was eight. And they were waiting with their mother, his wife, in Honolulu. They were going to go to the school on the mainland. And what they say is instead of her husband coming to join them, they came with the news that he had been killed by this Hawaiian. And so you had always heard this story passed down in your family? Yes. Um, And what was my grandfather, who was Louis Stoltz's son, sailed with Jack London on the snark to Hawaii and probably told that story to Jack London. And Jack London wrote a short story called Ko'olau the Leper. And it's uh, very um, anti-Stoltz, let's put it that way. And uh, it's distorted in its own way, but every story is distorted. Anyway, I never heard my grandfather talk about his father. I doubt that he ever remembered him even. And he didn't really talk much about himself or, or his father or 
even his mother, who took her two children back to Brooklyn and went to a women's medical school and graduated from medical school at the age of 40 <laughs> before coming out to California. And so this story then just kind of was in the recesses until recently? Pretty much. I knew of it. I knew Louis Stoltz had been killed, and uh, I vaguely knew the story. The author and former, I guess, Treasury Department uh, employee, John Mattinger, who used to live in Honolulu, got very interested in this story, and he actually contacted me and um, asked if I had any sort of inside information, which I didn't. But he had done a lot of research, and I found out some things I didn't know before. Uh, which I th thought were quite interesting, um, having to do with the timing of this incident. Um, and he suggests that it was a political issue, that was the time that the uh, provisional government was trying to rule. And Louis Stoltz actually wrote to the people in Honolulu and said, surely we could put some sentries or, or guards at the entrance to the valley where Ko'olau had fled, and that way they can't come out, and, and everybody's fine. Now, he said, because I think if anyone goes in there, somebody is going to get killed. And the powers that be were feeling precarious, I suppose, and wanted to show that they were in charge. They said, go get him. So he went in there and uh, with a couple of other deputies, I think, and um, I believe he came by sea, and I think he was in the valley several days before he finally encountered Ko'olau. And the only actual, I think the only actual description of the event is from Ko'olau's wife. I think she implied that Ko'olau's rifle went off accidentally, but it hit my great-grandfather who then apparently tried to get up with his rifle, and they and Colwell, of course, thought he would be killed, so he shot again, and that was the end of my great-grandfather. And so when the officers here reached out to you to tell you about this particular ceremony, you know, what did you think? I, I was touched that they were doing this, and uh, I, I think I'm the only one in my family who sort of is into my family history at all. I have three siblings. Two of them live rather farther away than I do in California. And one brother lives in Seattle, and he has a business to attend to. So I decided this is a good excuse to come to Honolulu. <laughs> yeah, and to actually see then his name, you know, on the plaque and, you know, this lovely service this evening, it, it was really touching. It really, it was very touching. And to see all the officers and uh, all the names and all the plaques and to kind of have a better appreciation of what law enforcement has to do and, and the risks they take. And, you know, for my great-grandfather, I always think it was a sad story of its time because we didn't understand leprosy then the way we do now. And the measures, there's a fearful disease, fearsome disease, and they did what they knew how to do, which was isolate people with leprosy. And if they weren't going to be isolated, they were afraid that everyone would catch it. And it's not that communicable, actually. But um, they didn't know. There was no treatment, no cure. They 
did what they thought they had to do, and my great grandfather was doing his job. And I, I know that, you know, that some people would take sides against him, and some people would take sides with him, and that's just the way it was. It's, as I say, it's, it was a sad story of its time, and it was really, uh, yeah, very moving to see all these people and all these uniformed officers and. A number of whom came up to me afterwards, from I guess from the sheriff's department, and greeted me, and and to see the young explorers taking laying the f roses on the plaques, also um, to hear, well, the bagpipes playing <laughs> Amazing Grace, that was lovely, and taps, and taps. I, my, my father was a naval officer, and when at his funeral they played taps, of course, and that so it sort of rings a little bell that little extra. Yeah. An emotional time and you know I think they were all honored to know that you traveled over here to be a part of the ceremony. Well I, yes and I was I mean I was honored that they asked me and, and asked me to read his name and to lay the rose on his plaque and uh, I'm grateful to them for including me and happy that I could come. That was Dr. Catherine Owen talking about the honor given to her great-great-grandfather, Louis Stoltz, who died in the 1890s. His name is now on the Hawaii Law Enforcement Memorial in the Capitol District, honoring fallen officers. And so we remember Deputy Sheriff Stoltz, one of the many fallen officers that we honor as National Police Week draws to a close. And that is it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we look at Hawaii's history with polo. Call our talkback line. Leave us your comments, 808-792-8217. Write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And you can listen back to our shows on the conversation page of the HBR website or on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere you find your podcasts. Our program is produced by Russell Subiano, Lillian Song, and Stephanie Hahn. The Backyard Quiz theme written for us by John DeMello. Our theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation. 